Production Show podcast. These sessions were recorded from our 2022 show and are now available for you to listen to on the move. This session is all about the new age of insurance for events, evaluating the government support scheme and the future. The pandemic has generated some challenging precedents, one of which resonates around safeguarding your business for future crises. This highly experienced panel will focus on the challenges around business interruption and event cancellation insurance during the pandemic, evaluation of the current government-backed scheme and an exploration into what the future holds for sector-specific insurance cover. Hello, I'm Carly Heath. I'm the Nightclub Economy Advisor for Bristol. Um, I've got a background in working live events, music mostly, uh, but now I get to represent the city from 6pm to 6am in our fair city of Bristol. Thanks Carly. And uh, Tim, can I get you to introduce yourself? I'm, uh, my name is Tim Thornhill, I'm the Director of Entertainment and Sport at Tizers Insurance. Um, we focus on the whole entertainment vertical from freelancers um, right up to very largest venues in the in the country, promoters and, and everything in between. Thank, thank you, Tim. Uh, Julie? Hi, I'm Julie Tippins. I'm Head of Risk Management for DHP Family. So we're a venue and nightclub operator. We've got venues in Nottingham, London and Bristol. And we've got a couple of festivals. And I procure insurance uh, for the company uh, when it's uh, needed. Thanks, Julie. And Simon? Look. So, uh, yeah, another insurance person. So I'm Simon Mab. I'm the Managing Director of NDML Insurance. We specialise in late night leisure uh, and nightlife insurance. We've been uh, in that sector specialist for nearly 25 years. And uh, when the business interruption COVID claim piece came that Mike mentioned there, the challenge, we were one of the brokers that led um, that and stood up and, and fought for our clients. Um, that's led to us uh, getting about £13 million worth of business interruption payments via insurers um, and uh, I think it's fair to say we're not quite done yet. Um, it's been very, very difficult uh, but we strongly believe that the insurance sector um, let its customers down quite significantly and if it wasn't for the likes of uh, the people that stood up and really made a case for it then a lot of businesses would have missed out. Thanks Simon. And, and uh, my name is Mike Kill. I'm going to be moderating today, and I'm the chief executive for the Nighttime Industries Association, which is a trade body uh, that looks after the businesses that operate between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. But I also am the chair of something called the UK Door Security Association, uh, which also has an integral part as a supply chain point, uh, leading into nighttime economy, festivals, and event sector. So, so look, I, I really want to kick this off. Um, you know, from our perspective, insurers um, have, you know, put up, been put up an, um, under an immense amount of pressure uh, over the last two years. Um, we're, we're aware that our industry, uh, both events and nighttime economy, has been hugely challenging, uh, billions of pounds lost. Um, but when we come down to insurance, the very thing that we, we try to rely on, uh, many of the businesses out there under business interruption, um, and cancellation insurance felt let down by insurers under many, many different reasons. Um, we, many of you know through the press uh, that the FCA uh, took uh, insurers, a certain amount of insurers under the uh, wordings or a certain level of wordings through the Supreme Court and won to a point. Um, that was a very marginal uh, amount of businesses that, that benefited from that. 
Uh, we've also heard of the Festival Insurance Scheme, which we'll go into um, slightly further on into this panel. Um, and recently, more recently, Corbyn and King, um, which saw AXA lose in the Supreme Court um, over aggregated position, which we're still you know, waiting to hear whether they are going to go for appeal or whether that's going to open up the doors to further, uh, further um, claims. Now, as you can appreciate, all of that has, has, has hit insurers massively. We know that cost inflation has hit the events and festival sector hugely. Nighttime economy is struggling. You know, we're in a position where we're moving into um, quite a substantial year in terms of us starting to grow back and recover. And we've got a long road to recover and we need support. Um, I just really want to ask a question on some of our panelists, just talking about insurance as a, as a whole. Um, and, and this is to, to Tim and Simon, particularly from an insurance perspective. How has the insurance industry reacted to the legal challenges by the industries and, and what does that set up for the future? Um, Simon, can I ask you first and then come to Tim? Yeah, thanks, Mike. I think um, most of the insurers and the insurance industry would like all these legal challenges to completely disappear. Um, I think they've been dragged through customers, um, taking insurers to court um, just, just really doesn't help the mistrust in the sector. Um, it's a very poor, poor position. Um, I think then you lead on to Corbyn and King, that's still got time to run. Um, as you said, with regard to the appeal, um, I think the problem is with all these legal challenges, they're gonna go on for a while yet. We've got things like Stonegate Brewery have still got their case to hear, which is due in um, probably in the summertime. We've also got the Marco Pierre White um, black and white hospitality um, case as well, which is looking like that's going to roll into the summer sometime. So I don't think this story's done yet. Um, it's bad press being pulled all the way through. Um, and what it's led to is effectively huge gaps in cover now because the insurers have removed what umbrella there was away completely. So there is no cover currently for COVID from a BI perspective. Um, so it's left big gaps there that no one's picking up. And, and Tim, just talking from an events and festival perspective, but also where many people, as we're hearing, are pulling out of leisure in many respects because of the high risk. You know, how is that going to affect the market moving forward? And could you give, give us a bit more of a perspective specifically around events and festivals? Well, I think there's two, two parts to it, really. Um, it's going to be the restriction in um, in the market and the insurers that are interested in covering it is going to mean that the prices are potentially going to and rates are going to increase and and there's going to be less choice for for operators in the sector and that's not particularly good it's not where it where we were a few years ago and um, reputationally it's been damaging for for insurers and to an extent brokers but brokers have, have fought um, to to get the best outcomes for the customers um, over the course of the last couple of years since it's all since it's all happened thanks Tim and and just just going to Carly and, and Julie uh, possibly Julie first just giving a I know, you know, working with yourself um, has been hugely frustrating. More, more about misinformation and misunderstanding of what you can and can't do and the technicalities around insurance, which have, have absolutely blown people's mind because, we, you know, we didn't realise. And I think there's been more focus, particularly on renewal of insurance, of really going line to line to understand what you're actually covered for now. Yeah. But give us a perspective from a, a venue and a, 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 a 
uh, festival event side exactly how it's changed the approach? Well, we were one of those companies whose um, policy we actually took to solicitors to have a look at, and they told us that we didn't have a, a case to take. And I think, actually, I think Steve from NDML actually looked at it as well. So we were left with absolutely zero cover um, whatsoever. Um, and, and going forward, I mean, that presents us with some big problems, probably more around the, the festival side of it than the venue side of it, I have to be honest, because I think venues can be incredibly... Um, uh, adaptable to do you know we can always think of something that we can do within the rules and that's what we did in a lot of our venues apart from when it was complete shutdown where we couldn't trade at all as soon as the door was opened you know we opened up outdoor areas and then we made our nightclubs into indoor pubs um, and, and so we could we could manage that but with festivals in particular we had to cancel them way in advance and that wasn't because we couldn't even go ahead with those festivals it was because with social distancing um, requirements in place, we would have lost more money of putting the festival on to have halved the attendance that we could actually put onto the site. So it actually, you know, we actually, those events were lost completely um, at a time when technically they could have gone ahead. So that's the great worry with those type of events, that you've got so much cost all concentrated within a short period of time, but the decision making has to be made three, six months in advance you get to a point where you've got to commission all of those contractors and you're going to have to pay them whether the event goes ahead or, or not. So in those instances there was no way that any insurance was going to help us because you know we knew we probably weren't going to be in lockdown but we knew that going ahead would, would actually cost us more than cancelling the event. And that's where it's very difficult going forward to think that you've got to have enough resources to be able to cope with cancellations yourself because you're not going to get insurance for it. No, 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 I completely hear you. And, and uh, Carly, I know you've got a wealth of experience in events and festivals and uh, have worked in that background prior becoming your, your current role, which is fantastic to have you on board as a nighttime economy advisor. Um, can you give us a bit of a perspective on the experience you've seen amongst your peers and colleagues and their approach to insurance? Yeah, certainly. I mean, as a, like a venue operator, Insurance is one of those things that you will have within your venue anyway, but most of the music scene particularly, you have a lot of promoters that come in to do events and they're often the ones that actually shoulder most of the financial burden and the insurance doesn't necessarily reach to them. So the people that are taking the biggest financial hit on artist development and creating new music and creating new scenes are the ones that actually um, probably wouldn't even be looking at having some sort of business interruption insurance in the first place. It's not even on their radar. So there's loads of there's loads of gaps in actually parts of the industry that it doesn't hit. Um, and when you're thinking about bars and restaurants and, and all of those sorts of parts of the nighttime industries, you look at what happened just before Christmas with the Omicron. The businesses were massively disrupted because of this don't go out but do go out policy from the government. But the insurance wouldn't kick in at that point in time because we're not in a full lockdown. So it's, it, it, it's re a really grey area, actually, to even when we are open and we are operating and we're not in a lockdown as to whether it's even effective for those types of instances. And I feel like there's a lot of opportunity to be able to open the market up into those kinds of um, situations that we saw just before Christmas. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. We've opened ourselves up to a huge range of new vocabulary uh, from triggering insurance to accessibility, causality. I think Philip Colvin took me through, uh, who's a QC who helped us with regard to the insurance uh, under BI when we, uh, we pushed through the FCA. Uh, a huge range of vocabulary that, that sort of brought about a real understanding of the challenges from 
you know, diseases emanating from uh, a business or a venue to being closed down by government to, you know, whether you've got access, whether you can actually trade. Um, and there were so many different technicalities. It was just so confusing. And I, I think we had such a wall of people coming to us saying, what does this mean? How does this work? And, and I think the sad bit about it is, is the lack of um, understanding within policy, whether you're an event, festival, venue, you know, we've really got a bit of a kick up the backside in terms of really starting to understand more exactly what we're signing on the, the dotted line for and, you know, whether these insurances were built for, for that purpose. But I, I think the challenge that we have moving forward is everyone is now looking at the detail sort of, you know, very much focused. Um, in, in terms of what you see, in it, and this is just an ad hoc question in, uh, uh, from an insurer perspective, We've seen premiums uh, advance. They are going to go up. We've seen that anyway. Uh, we've seen uh, the cover in terms of communicable disease be withdrawn from a lot of policies. Um, what do you see just from an insurance perspective in terms of BI? How do you see possibly that development to, to us being able to get that cover long term? Because we've also seen in policies outside of your traditional BI that covers that but it's very limited. And we'll go on to the festival insurance in a minute. But Simon, how do you see things sort of move forward? It's a very, very precarious position because it leaves a lot of businesses very vulnerable. Yeah, and I think, I think the position is that a lot of insurers just don't want to engage in that because they see it such as a huge risk at this point that they can't quantify. And so they can't then reinsure that. And so that's where they go. And I think that's where government-backed sort of future-proofed schemes need putting into place and I think you know if you look at terrorism as an example you know that, that was at probably this sort of stage when you had the IRA blowing up vans in in towns and, and cities you know no one could quantify that risk so they bought out you know a Paul re solution which was pooling a money and there was levies paid you know for terrorism insurance and no one would no one would you couldn't buy terrorism in the commercial market and as as that market's developed and people have understood the risk more, what you found is you've got Paul Ree and then you've got actual outside insurers now that will give some elements of terrorism cover, maybe not to the level of Paul Ree, but at more of a competitively priced point. So the market develops as the underwriters get to understand the risk. But COVID is, you know, will it come back, won't it come back? The problem is, is whilst the government controls the on and off switch, which is really the problem, then insurers aren't prepared to take that risk. Um, you know, when the government turns the switch off, they're paying with taxpayers' money, aren't they? Um, insurers don't want to be there when they turn the switch off, thinking they're just going to have to pay up. So I think there needs to be new solutions. No, and, and Tim, just talking from, uh, I know you've gone through the process and possibly this will lead on to where we're going to go with the festival insurance side, is, how do you think this is going to sort of start moulding and changing insurance for the future in terms of BI uh, uh, moving forward? Is, is there anything specifically that you could probably denote that you will see in terms of change outside of the RE schemes that potentially could be a central or government solution based on crisis? Well, I think it's, it's going to be mainly looking to see, uh, initially, to see what can happen within uh, the, those types of schemes, whether it be pan, a pandemic re, a black swan re. If these, th these projects that have been set up from, with the insurance industry, industry and ministers have, have had a few false starts so far. Um, 
and when if they do progress, then that's that's great, uh, and we, we get a government back solution. I think it's probably unlikely in uh, in the short term because the government, this government, doesn't seem to want to intervene um, in this area. But uh, what might happen outside of those schemes is um, there could be some cover uh, on a, what's, what's called a parametric basis where there are certain specific triggers, but that won't give businesses uh, certain specific triggers to trigger a claim, but that won't give the cover that's actually really needed uh, for, um, for, for the businesses that, that need to be able to operate. Yeah. And, and just, just for the clarity of everyone else, in terms of the RE scheme that we talk about, uh, Pool RE, that's based on a fund that is developed or grown through IPT percentage increase or insurance premium tax through a central funding that is triggered by a crisis. And we've seen Pool RE in terms of terror, we've got Flood RE, um, and, and I think what we're talking about is similar to what you're saying in terms of cancellation or pandemic, whether there is a rolled up position where there is a triggered government resource based on IPT input, which will affect premiums, but long-term protect people at a central point. That's, that's how it's encompassed, isn't it? I suppose in really simple terms. Yes. Uh, please, I understand that there are lots of different sort of... So, so look, I, I'm gonna get on to the sort of key things here, and I really wanna nail down on the, the government-backed festival insurance scheme. Um, which is, has been met with you know, a very mixed bag of response. And I know, Tim, you've been involved with others in, in sort of inputting and fighting in terms of events and festivals. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that policy and how it's molded itself and the response from government as you've gone through those negotiation processes? Sure, yes. So uh, we first started um, talking about a, potentially putting together a scheme back in July 2019, which was just after um, we lobbied for the government to introduce the production restart scheme, which really did give a strong boost to the film and TV industry. Uh, and that has been a, a, a great success um, in promoting economic activity in that sector. The challenge that government uh, had at the time was uh, with film and TV, it's in a very controlled environment um, with festivals and events. You can't control the audience, and so they were much more hesitant hesitant to uh, to, to intervene at the at the same point. So um, the lobbying efforts uh, started starting in in July went right through to um, with different level levels of engagement uh, from from uh, different government departments right through to. So June, July, um, we, we provided a huge amount of information for the uh, government actuarial department to, to, to look at it. And then, then what actually happened at that point was the government sort of, um, the, the Treasury and the live events reinsurance scheme uh, went into a, into a room and sort of uh, set up a, what they thought would be the, the right policy for the industry. And that was announced in August last year. But the, um, potentially what the, the mistake that they may have made is they didn't consult right until the decision was made. And uh, they created a policy which uh, had two big gaps in cover. The scheme only covers for uh, local or national civil authority shutdown. It doesn't cover for social distancing, uh, what we came up with the term which was um, 
enforced reduced capacity. So if, if you have a festival with um, 20,000 people and because of restrictions that are put in place, uh, only 5,000 could, could attend, that wouldn't be covered, that wouldn't trigger a claim. Even uh, if it was reduced down to 50 people, maximum gatherings of 50 people, that wouldn't have triggered a claim. So in that sense, it wasn't particularly fit for purpose. The other issue um, and potential gap that we, we saw, which was covered by the production restart scheme, was non-appearance non of key artists or crew. Um, and, uh, and, and that, uh, so if you're, if you're doing touring insurance, for example, and, and, uh, and, and the artist can't make it, then there's no insurance for that. So big holes in cover for the promoters. And, um, and then, so it was actually, um, there was a bit of a flurry. I, I wouldn't say it was a flurry, <laughs> really, actually. It was a, more of a, a few policies were, were sold towards the back end of last year. But um, as the government um, positively said, we are not going to go through any more lockdowns, um, period. Uh, that meant that effectively this, this scheme is, is pointless uh, because if there are going to be no more lockdowns, then there's no point in this policy. I, I, think, I think we coined a phrase when we said it's probably the safest money that they've ever spent. Yes. Uh, because they were never going to spend it. So the fact of the matter is, is and, and I applaud the efforts, um, both yourself and, and others, in driving this forward and trying to get to a point where we had some cover. But the reality is, is the point was missed. And, you know, uh, I think the cost implications also became a big issue. Yeah. Um, so just, Julie, can I bring you into that? Because you, you've uh, had a look at this, um, you know, from an operator perspective. And, and uh, it would be great to understand from your perspective, your feelings and... And, and, you know, whether it is fit for purpose, I suppose, is the question. No, I think Tim's hit the nail on the head, really. I think the, the main issues that we would, uh, we would need to be covered for would be around social distancing or restrictions placed on how we can operate. Mm. Um, so, um, particularly, again, as I mentioned, for festivals as well, um, the, the difficulty <coughs> there is at, at what point can we, can we claim it if we don't, you know, if you don't know what the rules are going to be at the moment that the festival takes place, are you going to run up to that point and maybe your insurance will cover you or maybe it won't and then you're going to make a huge loss? It just creates a whole area of real uncertainty for, for us and we, we, you know, not being cynical, but we have just accepted that the government is not going to cover us going forward um, and we are probably not going to be able to find insurance cover for a pandemic again. Um, unless the, the commercial insurance market comes up with a very expensive um, uh, policy by themselves. It's just not happening, really. So I think we have to think about how we're going to deal with this if it ever happens again, and almost um, discounting the insurance element of it. The, 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 the scheme the government has put forward, we looked at it and go, well, it wouldn't have helped us. You know, it wouldn't have helped us. Well, it would help us if they're going to do a pandemic again and we're going to have a complete shutdown, but actually, how long did that last for? And actually, we had costs that ran way after that that are obviously not going to be covered. So. I, I, think, I think the other thing, Simon, do you want to come in? Yeah, I think, I think Tim mentioned it earlier, which is I think the, the options that might come out of these parametric, parametric <coughs> insurance type things, which is starting to appear now in, in sort of general life, which is on an event, an amount of money is paid. So, you know, so people who can't buy flood insurance, for example, are able to buy certain parametric uh, covers which don't say they'll cover the the incident but maybe you can you can get an amount of say 
50 grand and what they do with the flood is they say if it hits that marker basically you get an automatic payout so um, it's like loss of license you have a fixed price <coughs> for that don't you on yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so you can get that on um, uh, festival covers with regard to rainfall you know if you get a certain amount of rainfall in an area it'll pay you X out so I think that's that's a way of the insurers understanding their risk without having mm. an elongated sort of process for working out the loss. They just pay the <coughs> X, and then you might be able to say, well, I know that I've got on costs that I can't get rid of, of 50 grand expenses that I can't kill if the event goes, doesn't happen. I'll just insure 50 grand's worth of cover and I'll just get an instant payout. So I can see those sort of solutions coming. It's interesting. I mean, when, when we when we spoke about it, I mean, the cost, I mean, many of the, the smaller festivals just completely discounted it because it was a separate policy outside of their normal policy in terms of protection. It only, as you quite rightly said, is only around a, a, a lockdown. Um, and people just, you know, they just stepped away, you know, and I, I think they lost interest. But I mean, you know, like everything else, and there are certain things that that have been released during this pandemic that have got such bad or negative press that they've always almost killed themselves in the water through the press position, let alone the actual metrics of actually moving it forward. So, uh, Carly, can I get your perspective on it? Because I, I know you've got some thoughts on this as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, what we saw, certainly <coughs> with those festivals that didn't happen in summer, but in Bristol, all of the inner city festivals, they were all happening kind of like September right up until the edge of October. They were all, a, a season's worth was kind of cramped into five weeks. Um, with those sorts of festivals, the tickets had already been on sale by the time that the insurance had been announced. And when the insurance was like a percentage of um, the cost of the whole thing to put on, they didn't have the money in the budgets to be able to even purchase that insurance in the first place mm. um, because the tickets had already been sold the year before. So it was kind of almost irrelevant to those sort of inner city festivals that we were seeing in Bristol. Um, it, and also, like we mentioned, it didn't, can, it didn't count for cancellation on some things like if your main artist can't fly into the country because there's travel restrictions from that country to our country, it just completely didn't count it. Now, if you are a small festival and you're pinned around a headliner and your headliner can't come because they've got COVID, um, that, that is a really dramatic thing that will happen to your event. Um, and there just isn't that sort of cover. So for the conversations that I was having, certainly on, with the smaller festival organisers, was a little bit that it really isn't worth the paper that it was written on, and most of them didn't even go anywhere near it. So I feel like the government really missed an opportunity to be able to, to, be able to back up our industries. Um, and, you know, hopefully there's not going to be another pandemic. When you say it's the easiest money, um, to, you know, it's, it's kind of the licence to print money, really, isn't it? If people, if they did do... Um, a more comprehensive cover saying that they're not going to do any more lockdowns actually I feel like they could have got more money into the insurance business overall, it was a bit of a missed opportunity No, no, no and, and I completely agree, it was almost celebrated and then uh, I think every single person I spoke to just went devils in the detail <laughs> and I felt for the efforts that everyone had made to try and do a positive thing but we got to a point where actually the more and more you dug down and I was getting phone calls from festival operators saying this is not going to work. This is really not going to work. We're missing an opportunity. So, so look, let's cut to the chase. What, what would you have liked to have seen? What were the key elements that you'd have liked to have seen? Tim, you probably had some things without a doubt that you were fighting for to get forward. It would be good to hear those so people understood the full scope, not just what the government put forward, but the full scope of 
the ask um, and then if we can get from everyone else just what you would have liked to have seen in that scheme the the, the key things uh, would be firstly a, a reasonable rate because if you were a, a festival before 2019 you would be paying uh, one point something percent for that for that festival uh, to, for cancellation insurance this was for one peril which was a covid it, you're paying 5%. So that is a huge increase in budget, and particularly when it doesn't have those gaps in cover. So the two main asks were have what a contingency policy is really designed to do. It's an all-risks policy. And what, when, when I say all, an all-risk policy, it means everything's covered unless it's specifically excluded. And um, before, um, before COVID, communicable disease was excluded. Uh, but you could buy it back for 0.15% normally. And now cyber's excluded, um, and, and you can buy that back. But what we really want to, wanted to be able to see is to have no gaps, no exclusions, and if there were options to, to, to say you had a, an exclusion of non-appearance, then the option to buy that back. So it's really about around the not having any holes in cover, making it all risks, and having it at a reasonable price that is actually going to support not just the promoters, but the whole of the supply chain that the promoter is going to contract with, um, to, so that the, these industries can uh, keep keep on going. And what we've we've seen on the back of this, not having a slightly off topic from your question, is real struggles with the supply chain because many promoters haven't been able to contract with. Um, with those, with, with the, the people that they would normally do so, and, and so they might have left the industry, and, and now we're going into a festival season with, with significant challenges. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Carly, can I bring you in on that bit? Yeah, I think actually that point about the supply chain is really key because it's like looking at every, you know, we are an ecosystem within night, like nighttime industries and, and making sure that we're looking after everybody within that, not just the promoters, not just the venues, and not just the people that are at the top but the people who their whole thing will be disrupted. You know, when, we do, when we're talking about festivals particularly, people put a lot of money to be able to bring their stuff to the festival, whether that's stall holders, whether that's stage and lighting, all of those sorts of people, and, and the protection on those kinds of organisations, if, if those contracts get cancelled through no fault of their own, just doesn't seem to be there. Um, I think also when we had we had incidences back last summer when the venues were closed because of the pandemic. So we would have um, managers catching COVID, not being able to open the venue because there wasn't anybody trained to do it. So then the promoters had to pull the show and there was no protection for that. And actually it had been closed because of COVID, but there was no sort of insurance. So I feel some gaps in, there's some gaps to actually look after the supply chain and make sure that, um, that, that from top to bottom, there's, there's cover that can be made. And there's probably opportunities for the insurance industry to make a bit of money there as well, because at every single level, people will be wanting to protect their businesses. So, um, it, it's, you know. it's interesting. It's like you say, the devil's in the detail, and now everyone is so focused on the detail policy-wise. Um, can I bring Simon in, and then Julie? Can I just get you to sort of just give us what would you like to see, Simon? I think the artists covered is a massive gap. Um, you know, just fundamental. You know, if you're putting on a, an event and the artist can't turn up because they catch COVID, it's the end of the it's the end of the show, isn't it? You know, that's it's a big, big part of it. So there was a big, big thing there, big excess as well. I think there was quite a reasonable deductible 
um, on there. So by the time you added in the cost of the of the cover, as Tim mentioned, and then you factored in what you'd have to pay in terms of an excess or a, or some sort of deductible, actually what you were being left with, it became a very expensive um, product. Uh, sadly, I think probably the issue is is that you don't see many MPs at many festivals. Um, and you see a lot of MPs at film film events and, and that sort of sector, hence they probably got the support and the sector probably didn't get so much support because it's just not as mainstream for that political uh, group. No, and I hear that. And Julie, can I just get your perspective before we move on to uh, the future? Well, my thoughts are, are, are maybe slightly different. That I think we've been through the pandemic and I think what we still don't really understand, I don't think, is the actions that the, took, the government took, uh, and some of them were really drastic in relation to our sector, how actually effective were they at managing COVID? Because I kind of feel if we had a pandemic again, surely we would not do the same things again that we have done this time. And in which case, would we close our venues for such a long period of time? You know, would we, would we have managed that pandemic a lot better so that we had far fewer cases, far fewer hospitalizations, and far fewer deaths? And if we managed it better, therefore the risk to us is going to be lower. And that for me is like, you know, you know can we get insurance for, I'm going to say, crap government actions? Because that's ultimately what we're talking about, isn't it? You know, they could have done this a lot better. We could have suffered a lot less. It would have been a lot less grief between us and insurance companies. And insurance companies going forward, I think if they knew what the plan was, if this happened again from the government, and they could see that, that actually maybe the risk isn't that massive, because actually maybe we don't have to have these huge lockdowns that last for so long. You know, we start from an earlier point, we bring things in quicker, we have that sharp, sharp, shop. It might only be two, three weeks, and then we can reopen again. And so I think, you know, I think we, we insurers would probably be a lot more sympathetic if they knew exactly what the government was going to do the next time around, this comes around again. And I, mean, I think it can't be, surely, they can't do the same that we've just been through. But it does bring about the question is that the management has, has it facilitated premiums to go up because of the length of closures and, and exposure and, and, and it's a very valid point. Um, look, let's, let's, let's get on to something different. Let's try and focus on the future. Um, you know, we know insurance premiums have gone up. Most of the businesses are either overburdened with debt um, and we've faced a season where cost inflation is going to be a, a huge issue. Um, it was interesting, I, I was speaking to to Biff from Glastonbury yesterday, who was searching for toilets, I think is uh, on-site toilets. And he said that they'd gone from something like 500 toilets, I can't remember the number, to 40 grand to 80 grand to get them on-site. Um, and the likes of some of the staging companies haven't got the stages out there. And some of the big, big production companies and <clears throat> are, are really focused on trying to harness and make sure that they can secure the infrastructure. So there is a huge worry this year for infrastructure, let alone resource. So just focusing on insurance, and, and I'm gonna ask sort of a very direct question to the uh, insurers on the panel is, how do we bring down that cost? What's the best way of doing? Outside of us, we can't control the claim position. What can we do to bring down that cost from a government perspective and as, a, as operators, what's the best way that we can try and facilitate a better position for many? I'll come to you, Tim, if that's okay. Yeah, well, so you're, the, it's understandable why the costs have gone up 
for a start. I mean, I know that we paid out for in contingency insurance um, three hundred million of uh, three hundred million dollars of, of, of claims, and there was six billion of uh, global claims uh, in excess of uh, paid for a fraction of the premium. And so we know the reasons why uh, it's it, we are where we are, but uh, and we've already seen ways to, to reduce the, those uh, costs that when you were buying festival insurance st used to start with a one, now it probably starts with a two um, uh, in terms of the rate. So the way in which uh, an operator can reduce those costs would be to change their contracts with their suppliers. So you can, if you're a promoter, for example, you can shift your um, the, the, the uh, contractual liability, so you, you're not liable to pay, say, artists if a show doesn't go ahead because of adverse weather or COVID, so you're effectively reducing the limit uh, of indemnity that you're, you're insuring. I think that's probably the, the single best way that we've seen uh, some operators, but then it, it does filter down through to the, to the rest of the, the, the chain, whether that be um, uh, infrastructure uh, or, or artists or, or, or whoever, whoever that might be. Um, but uh, the other thing that we've seen is uh, not, not around changing contracts, but everybody should be really looking closely at what they're insuring. What are their perceived risks? Are they re reviewing what, what their turnover every year? Um, going through the process in a lot more detail, every single renewal process for both liability policies, equipment policies, and, and cancellation insurance policies. So I think that they're probably the, the, the best ways that we, we would be advising our clients to sort of to, to look at at the moment. Brilliant. Uh, Simon, can I just bring in, I mean, uh, I know you're not so much events and festivals, mm. but definitely nighttime economy business is broad. I think, I think um, the stuff Tim's all has said you know, that, that's, that's a given. Um, excesses, how much of the risk you're prepared to keep yourself. I think uh, that may be, you know, there may be some rate reduction in some of that. But I think from, a, from an overall piece, I think the biggest thing that, that we, everybody should really be lobbying for is insurance premium tax is 12% of a premium. There's 6.3 billion pounds of tax generated from insurance. Now, the, this sector, as we've already said, is probably being hit, hit more because it's not in the vanilla area. You know, it's not a very simple bit. So as insurers contract their appetite, the harder to place risks, nightclubs, venues, all, you know, festivals, etc., are paying higher, higher because there is less capacity, etc. So you're compounding that by adding another 12% on top of that. So as Tim's rate, as he's just talked about, has doubled, it means that the Chancellor is getting double the insurance premium tax. Now, 6.3 billion will probably be 7 billion this year with the, what's going on. When it first started, it was a 2.5% tax that generated about a billion pounds. Now, none of that money is appearing anywhere. It's just going into the general. None of that's being used against a crisis re or, uh, or anything else. So the more you pay, whether you're an 18-year-old driver who now pays £4,000 for their first year's insurance is paying 12% of on top of that in insurance, insurance tax. So the harder, the, the higher the risks are, the more they're paying away. So that is a huge take 
there that's just disappearing. Um, that is the same amount of money as Paul Ree had at, had at one point, um, but that's annually. That's probably nearly seven billion pounds a year. That's the latest figures from 21. I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, could, could we convert that into use is the question. I mean, when you talk about it, I, I know there was conversations had where, uh, as I understood at the start of the, uh, the pandemic, they drew from Paul Ree a certain amount of money. I think it was something like 900 million that was drawn into the treasury so that they could distribute funding and support. So, you know, it definitely has its use there. Why, why could we not further use that through an RE scheme? Um, there, there was a portion of that talked about, I think, a couple of budgets ago about being put towards flood defence work. Right. And I think once, and I think following that announcement, there's been some sort of digging into, well, where are these flood defences that were supposedly funded on the back of an additional 1% or 2% and some of that stuff hasn't really, it just disappeared. You know, stuff that was, you know, typical government, it's been, a, it's just an announcement on top of an existing announcement. So they were already going to do 300 million pounds worth of flood work. They've just said that's an excuse for generating some more premium. So that's an area that, that the government will look to take probably upwards you know, heading towards maybe VAT or whatever, and that's a significant proportion of someone's spend. So if you've got a 20% increase in your premium, you know, 12, you know, if there was no IPT, so maybe on higher, higher areas, maybe they were IPT exempt or whatever to try and help recover certain area, injury areas or whatever, but I think there's an opportunity there. It's whether it would be passed on is the other question, isn't it, I suppose, but... Uh... This is just what's really frustrating. You've got like pots of money that can be used to help the industry that the industry is paying for, but actually it's not going back into us to be able to support us. It's just going back into um, some and, mystery pot of money that, that um, the government gets to use on something else. It's really... And when, yeah. the, insur when, when the government talks about insurance premium tax, when they talk about it in the budget, they always talk about it being a cost on insurers. The insurers just pass it straight on. It's not a cost on insurers, it's a cost on policyholders. So actually the more risk averse you are, so the more insurance you buy, the more you're penalised. So Julie, dare I ask, I'm waiting for <laughs> Well, After hearing that, you just want to explode, <laughs> I don't do. you? I do. I mean, I think you mentioned it earlier that the government really doesn't understand our sector. And, and this, this pandemic has really, you know, and a lot of people have done a lot of work to educate the government but I still feel that when I hear them talking about our sector they just do not really understand the value that we bring and it's not just about the money it's actually about what we do for people ultimately it's about you know the people of this country are in a much better place if they have good resources to go out and use for entertainment socializing you know young people in particular really need it it's really important for their livelihood and their lives you know so for me, it's, you know, I'm not saying it's because they're old, old and, you know, over 40, over 50, over 60, whatever, but really somehow we've got to get them to understand how absolutely vital we are to this country. And I know there's been a lot of work about how much money we generate and, you know, how many people we employ, but that, you know, we should be, we should be one of their top priorities to make sure that this sector thrives in this country because we do so much good. And actually, it's just like they're just not interested in us. Uh, and you know, I think maybe all of us have got to do more to bring the politicians in to see the value of what we do, 
so they can understand why they have to support us at times of crisis. And that's all we're asking for, because actually we don't ask a lot from government, I don't think. We're actually quite happy to just get on and do our own thing, but at times of crisis, that's when a government should be there to make sure that we don't lose what we've got in this country, because once it's lost, you know, I do feel like we will, we will maybe never get it back, you know. Well, I'd like to say that Michael Gove has accepted both invitations out to a night out of recent <laughs> so, uh, and, and enjoyed himself thoroughly dancing with uh, a, a numerous amount of MPs. But uh, uh, Carly, I, know, I yeah. know you're itching, so yeah. please, please. So I, I think this, it, it's, when we're talking about the nighttime economy, you know, we're talking about the 6pm to 6am economy. The city doesn't stop at 6 o'clock when you're, when you're not at work. You're in the nighttime economy, and it's not just nightclubs, it's not just clubs, pubs, bars, antisocial behaviour, and students falling out of kebab shops at three o'clock in the morning. You know, everybody of every age point goes out and visits their friends in the evening, and, and we are an essential part of what it means to be a civilised society, to be able to actually go out to a restaurant with our friends. You know, even, even Tory politicians go to the theatre, they'll go to opera, they go to the parts of the nighttime economy that is for them. It's not just about nightclubs. And I think there's, we've, we've come, what the benefits of the, night, or benefits of the pandemic has done is it's enabled us to talk about us as an industry, about us as a collective and about what our cultural value is and what our cultural worth is. And I feel like we're getting somewhere with that conversation. We're, we're starting to break down those barriers and break down those doors and people to understand that it isn't just young people falling about the streets at three o'clock in the morning and there's so much more to us. So I think there is some good that's come out of this, but there's a long way to go. Uh, absolutely. I, I think that, I mean, look, I think all of us have been in government circles at some time. Um, we've been giving evidence. I'm due to give evidence to the House of Lords tomorrow, so that's going to be an interesting one. Um, but, you know, as we all said, education, education, education. They need to understand more. Um, you know, to sit in front of the cultural minister and not understand what electronic music is or what its value or its cultural or community value is surreal. So can you imagine the strength and depth? within that department of really misinformation. Um, when we talk about bays um, and the work that we've done with them, a cabinet office, you know, to introduction of COVID passports, there is so much work and done in education, but... And the Arts Council, you exactly. know, like where, where Arts Council goes to this highbrow arts and theatre and museums and all of this kind of stuff, and it doesn't go on music in the way that it should do. It's our money, it's at the end of the day, it's our tax money that goes into the system, we should be able to access it to get it back. Uh, exactly. And, and I think the other thing is, is we need stronger representation in government. I think people need to be a bit braver. They need to stand up regionally and nationally and, and, and really sort of shout. And I know there have been great advocates out, and including many on the panel here, but you know, we need more of it, to be honest. Um, so just a quick last whip through, and then I'll do a, a, a reach out and see if anyone's got any questions. Um, you're standing in front of the Chancellor, what would you tell him right now? Or go on, Simon. Can we have some of that twelve that twelve uh, percent back? <laughs> Tim, from an insurance perspective, go on. What would you say to uh, Rishi? Um, don't discount that government intervention, insurance intervention, can be an exceptionally effective um, lever into promoting economic activity and helping out a sector. Look at what happened with the film and TV restart scheme, just as an example. They sold nearly 1,200 policies so far. They have, uh, they had, they've had over 300 claims on that, 
And at the rate it's at at the moment, which is 2.5%, which people are buying, it would be profitable for, for the government. They are still making money for the amount that's, that's invested. And the amount of economic activity that that's put in it, into the film and TV sector is, is fantastic. What is bizarre is that they're shutting that down at the end of April rather than continue it. And the commercial market isn't able at this point to step back in. So why not use such an effective lever that can be profitable to keep the economy going? Thanks, Tim. Julie, quick one. I think, I think if I was going to talk to the Chancellor, I would, I would say you need to support us. You need to support us and you need to understand us. Um, so, you know, come and talk to us. We'll show you what we do and we'll show you how much money we, of our money, you're using. Because at the end of the day, government money is not, it's not their money, it's our money. So surely we, as, you know, we pay more tax in our industry probably than most other industries do. If you think about all the duty on alcohol and the rates, uh, you know, all the people that we employ directly. We are a massive generator for you and we expect that you're going to support us because we're actually providing you with a huge amount of money. So uh, you need to accept that and, and you know, support us. Thanks, Judy. Carly, just to finalise. Yeah, I would say that actually the nighttime economy is a really nimble sector. We're really, we're really quick at being able to um, change direction and we're also great innovators. You know, lots of people start within nighttime economy and they grow big businesses out of it. Um, being able to invest in us at, at the time at which we need it will pay dividends further down the line. So it's just about kind of seeing the value in what our worth is, really. Amazing. Well, look, thank you very much to our panel. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to put out, if we've got a couple of five minutes, if we've got any questions from the audience. Um, I know we're running quite close on time. So uh, any questions from anyone in the audience? Are we? Uh, please. Uh, I think you might need... Oh, there you go. Hi. Forgive me if I've missed this bit, but um, does anyone have any idea of how many... Uh, companies or festival operators or event operators have made use of the government scheme so far because in terms of festivals I'm not aware of a single one um, that has taken advantage of it and it's, and it's universally accepted as not being suitable. Uh, I, just, uh, I think we spoke about this Tim, there's a very limited amount. Yeah, so um, our guess at the moment is somewhere between 30 and 50 policies have been taken out, none of which have been festivals. So there you go. <laughs> that shows how effective it is. Do you know what nature of events they are, these 30 or 50? So these, these were mainly taken out before Christmas and before Omicron, uh, and they varied between uh, Christmas markets, award shows, some, some corporate events, and some um, night, nightclub events uh, in, in London, in, in Edinburgh, in Scotland, and a, a, few, a few things like that. It's been a bit of a mix, but certainly no, no festivals and nothing, that's, nothing that I know of that goes into this summer. Thank you. Thanks. Any other questions before we finish off? Uh, well, listen, thanks to the event production show. Thanks to the panelists. Uh, you've been amazing. It's been a great conversation. Uh, I know we've had a real build up to this, so we've had lots to talk about and we riled ourselves earlier, but thank you very much and thanks for your time. Want to learn more about the show that brings together event professionals from every sector? Visit eventproductionshow.co.uk.